0: Yeah, the commanders are surprisingly good. They notched they notched another win and, and they also unveiled a, a new uh statue at their at their facility. Wait, facilities. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: A so, statue. A yeah, statue. They they unveiled uh, you're yeah. using that term very they unveiled
0: what was supposed to be a statue because they had it wrapped in like, you know, red velvet as though they were pulling something off. And it was a tribute to a uh, former defensive back that was that was tragically killed, Sean Taylor. Um I think it was supposed to be a big moment. The family was there. Fans were there. And I don't mean to laugh because this this young man was killed tragically. But when the curtain came down, so to speak, what was there was what appears to be someone ran out to a Target, grabbed a mannequin, (laughs) came back, and threw his uniform on with his number and a helmet, mismatched stuff. Welcome to Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with D.P. and McGee, the podcast that takes a unique look at the business of sports, sometimes irreverent, often cynical, and on occasion even serious. I'm your co-host, David Parro.
1: And I'm Tim McGee.
0: So we hope everyone here in the United States enjoyed a wonderful Thanksgiving celebration on Thursday, got to recharge the batteries as we hurdle toward the end of year holiday season. Group play in Qatar is winding down as we record this. You know, we've spent the last three shows focused pretty much on World Cup, rightfully so, of course. Um, and we're going to talk about it a bit today, I'm absolutely sure. But we'll try to take in a few other topics as well. So, as we like to do, I'm going to turn it over to Tim and say, what is on your mind?
1: Well, it's World Cup, right? We're sitting here <laughs> as we record this, less than an hour for kickoff, from kickoff uh, for the match between the U.S. and Iran the last game in uh, group stage play for that group. And it's pretty simple, US wins, and they move on to the knockout stage, a tie or a loss, and they go home. Um, But I think uh, this game is, is fraught with sort of underlying issues that we didn't really maybe anticipate three weeks ago when we started talking about the World Cup in earnest, right? So you and I are both old enough to remember the USA versus Russia in the 1980 Olympic Games at Lake Placid, New York, the so-called miracle on ice. And I I was trying to think this morning of any international competition in the last 42 years that has been as big as that game. And I I couldn't come up with anything. And I think that's uh, this match today. rises almost to that level um and it's and it's all because or it's in large part because probably some social media manager at US soccer decided to make a post where they removed uh the emblem of the Islamic Islamic state from the flag of Iran and it was up for a few hours and then was taken down um and created quite uh you know, or kerfuffle in Qatar, um, you know, manufactured in large part by Iran, complaining to FIFA, saying that the U.S. should be thrown out of the World Cup, should be suspended for ten matches. Um, I think on one level it's gamesmanship by Iran. Um, I think on other, in others, it's playing out geopolitical issues on an athletic stage. Uh, But from my understanding, there is nothing in the FIFA rule books that would have prevented the U.S. from doing what they are doing, as ill-timed or ill-conceived as it may have been to do what they did to the Iranian flag. So love to get your thoughts on it. Well,
0: there are two pieces to this, really. One is the support of particularly Iranian women that have been protesting and been subject to harsh punishment in Iran, uh, as well as what is being done in Qatar. Uh, when protests flare up, and there is kind of this movement um, woman life freedom uh, that is going around. and and you see some crackdown there, possibly solidarity between security forces in Qatar and Iran. So there is part of what the us did in terms of, you know, what they were supporting that I like. Uh, and I think was nice, and I don't think there should necessarily be apologies for, despite what FIFA told the participating countries to do. The execution was com- was completely stupid and dis- and it was disrespectful. I mean, you're 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 changing a flag. I mean, we would we would feel the same way if oh if my gosh, could
1: you imagine the yeah. uproar if somebody took right. stars or stripes out of our flag? Right yeah, there, there, there
0: there would be people calling for immediate strikes, uh, which, which would be of course absurd, um, but. You know, we talked a lot about these potential issues and the and the pushback that FIFA was giving the clubs that were thinking about protesting. So I can look at this on on two different levels, maybe more, and that the idea that on this big platform, it would have been nice to see people, team leaders on those teams, clubs, coaches, et cetera, be able to, you know, show some support uh, for things that we hold dear. Uh, on the other hand, doing things that are straight out slap. So, you know, to your point, what grounds they had to say that they should be kicked out of it out of the tournament, was was, of course, absurd. But um, it just it just raises the whole ante. And it's not as though we have particularly you know, good relationships with uh, Iran <laughs> anyway. Uh, and obviously it's spilled out in 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 press conferences uh, and so forth. And, and apologies have to be made.
1: It also has the added effect of drawing away some of the attention that was placed on the Iranian team, who, as you remember, stood silently during their national anthem in a form of protest, as well as the Iranian team captain who made comments that we called out last last week as being particularly courageous. So it does take away some of the attention from that and puts it on the U.S. Um, uh, no. I, I do know that coach Burkhalter and Tyler Adams, the team captain did address it in, in a press conference. I don't know how much it's gotten through to the team and whether or not it will have any impact on their, you know, on their mental preparation for the match. I, my sense is it probably won't have much effect at all. And if it does, it's probably, you know, marginally positive in terms of pumping them up. But as they say, if you need to get something on the, uh, on the bulletin board at this point to get up for this match there's something wrong with you. But let's take a minute, if you don't mind, to talk about Tyler Adams and his performance. The way he handled himself is probably a better way to put it because performance seems to imply it was staged. But his what he said in a, in a press conference specifically as it related to uh, the questions and, and uh, comments by an Iranian journalist, so
0: Yeah, no, this this uh, young man has really gotten the attention, I think, of this country and, and hopefully beyond. Tyler Adams is a 23-year-old midfielder, captain of the U.S. men's national team. Uh, he's from New York. He plays for Leeds United in Premier League. Um, but those that don't follow Premier League closely or maybe don't follow uh, U.S. soccer until these mo- moments like this, he's not a household name. Uh, I think he's close to a household name now. And so what he did was he was what I would say is maybe harassed a bit by an Iranian reporter. But you talk about a guy that was up to the moment oh, in terms goodness. of staking calm. He's the guy you want as your captain, right? Um, he was asked, first of all, to apologize for mispronouncing Iran. He had said Iran, which a lot of people say in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then asked to address how could how could the U.S. be critical when there are all these uh, racial issues? Tyler was raised, I believe, in a in a white household. He is he, he is African American, um, and he, he's able to talk about it. And he talks about opportunities he had that that maybe others didn't. Um, but he so he apologized immediately. The first thing he did when the when the reporter was done the question, he apologized for mispronouncing the the country's name, and then he later went on to actually thank him. For educating him. Because he talked about education and the importance and the, and the differentiation he made was, was, as long as progress is being made, that's positive. And in his view, he looks at, I think, America and says, we, we identify p- problems and we try to work toward them, you know, despite all the challenges. And he did it um, intelligently, thoughtfully, calmly, uh, had to put that reporter who was definitely looking to, you know, kind of uh, needle him a bit. Uh, back on his heels because it was just one of the for, for this young guy on this stage with all the pressure before this match to be able to be um to be that calm I mean man a lot of people could take uh take lessons from that
1: his response was one that you would expect from a seasoned diplomat somebody who had spent years in the foreign corps as working in in an embassy overseas, right? That's how tactful, that's how calm, as you said, he was in his response, um, and I just thought it was a masterclass in in tact and diplomacy, and completely diffused that journalist, right? Who you said, you know, rightly said, was probably itching for for a confrontation. Um, but we're well, we're sitting here, right, like now, what, 45 minutes from kickoff, right? And, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how this match plays out.
0: Yeah, I mean, just pressure on the face of it, given all that has been invested in U.S. soccer, um, the improvement that they have shown on the pitch, changing pretty much everything, approach to the game, um, and now they get to this moment after the tie with Wales and and what was a great match against England. They played really solidly and held a, a world power to a draw. That was impressive. And now they have to win this game, as, as you said, at the uh, opening of this segment, because uh, people will feel it's a big setback. But one person in particular, that being Tyler Adams, I know is going to come out of this no matter what happens uh, in a positive way. And you think about all the times that athletes or celebrities, and and in some cases, I understand it, say, not my area of response. I don't know anything about that. He took on the question to the best of his ability without any um, arrogance, without any, well, I know better than you, or I live in a free country.
1: Sorry, that was my (laughs) pregame. Seeing if they've listed the starting uh, line. You
0: know what we need? You know what we need? We need a producer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Know anybody? (laughs) (laughs)
0: so yeah this is uh it's a big moment it's a big moment in a lot of ways now in this the press conference the uh what i think was a, a faux pas to your point on the on the post with the alteration of the iranian flag um it just it just amplifies this thing and uh i'm a partisan i'm pulling for the u.s here big time um and uh so I hope they're able to hope they're able to put that aside and and play their best soccer.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating match, right? Because as we said earlier, Iran only needs to get a tie, so they're going to be playing a very defensive minded match, right. whereas the U.S. has to find a way to finally break through, right? After scoring one goal in the last two matches, right. having great chances against England, but being but being able to convert those and find the back of the net—that's going to be you know, critical today. So hopefully they get off to a strong start. Yep. Got to finish.
0: So let's turn the tables for a bit. um, And take a look at, let's come back to American football, really Fox's weekend, uh, Fox sports weekend that they had starting on Thanksgiving day, where they registered the largest regular season broadcast ever in the Giants Cowboys uh, matchup, which averaged 42 million viewers on Fox for Thursday. Now I know they have a captive audience. It's a, it's a great game to show because huge market, New York, America's team in Dallas. Um, but, but delivering that kind of number. And that was just the start. They on Saturday had the Michigan, Ohio state, uh, matchup, which, uh, pulled in an audience of 17 million nationwide um, uh, for a, a noon kickoff, which is the most watched regular season college football game in network history. Now I'm going to stop for a second and say, going into the weekend, they were talking like with big swag. It was like Fox sports, you know, talking that this was going to be this giant weekend. And they had all these things lined up because of course they are also the broadcast partner for world cup. And they had the U.S. U.S. England match, which was the biggest domestic men's world cup audience since 1994, which drew 15.4, uh, million viewers so and then if you actually add Telemundo onto that apparently it did hit about 20 million so um, yeah. um, so big big numbers that um, that we're seeing uh, I just the weekend could not have lined up better they took advantage of it and they put on great broadcasts and and they drove huge audiences
1: so I'm I'm going to ask you it's not a trivia question which I like to give you okay. this is more of a quiz right <laughs> <laughs> that what, sounds worse. What drew what drew a, a bigger audience? England versus US, which you just mentioned was about 20 million between Fox and Telemundo, uh, or the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade.
0: I don't have that number because but I'm guessing the Macy's I'm I'm gonna say Macy's because I know it's a top I know it's a top hundred easily every year i yeah. don't know that i think i have that somewhere actually but.
1: good call 27.7 yeah. million i never would have guessed that
0: right so i didn't in, realize it through that well so interestingly and this is why i kind of led with going american football that you know the numbers of the top say 100 shows of the year like broadcasts of the year um not total views or streams or anything like that but shows that air and are watched the nfl just dominated uh, once again, so Macy's is on there. There were a couple of political events. The first one to crack the NFL um, was fairly far down the list, and that was the State of the Union. So it just it just looks like even with some of these other matchups that are going to be coming down uh, the road here before this season is over, they'll just they'll just have. I think right now it's 74 of the hundred most watched, and other things that sprinkle in uh, Beijing Olympics, State of the Union. Uh, September 6th committee meeting, uh, which was an interesting addition. Kentucky Derby, the NBA had a few and college football is probably the next big property. So it just, it really shows that, you know, from a live programming standpoint, you know, football is still super big and sports overall uh, still uh, tend to really dominate. In our first show, we talked about the end of year stats on on that and the strength of uh, of the NFL, but obviously that just continues and their stranglehold on the American audience in terms of the things that dominate are just big. And then when you think about you know one game drawing forty two million, that's not a Super Bowl. It's right. pretty remarkable.
1: Right? Yeah. The it is the NFC least no more. Uh, I was talking to our good friend this morning, Terry Lefton, who is. Where's the uh, the moniker of world's most obnoxious Philadelphia sports fan, and wears it proudly, by the way. So it's uh, that is not meant as a an pejorative. insult to Terry, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not a pejorative. Uh, but he was he pointed out that if the uh, if the season were to end today, every team in the NFC East would make the playoffs. Um, but what's wild is there's still six more games to be played, so. A lot of great football. So yeah, we'll the see.
0: yeah the Commanders are surprisingly good. They notched they notched another win, and, and they also unveiled a, a new uh statue at their at their S- facility. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> a so, statue. A statue. Yeah, they they unveiled. Uh, you're yeah, using that term very They loosely. unveiled
0: what was supposed to be a statue because they had it wrapped in like you know, red velvet as though they were pulling something off. And it was a tribute to a uh, former defensive back that was, that was tragically killed Sean Taylor. I, I think it was supposed to be a big moment. The family was there. Fans were there. Obviously when teams do these things, it, it tends to be a big moment. It should be a big social moment. A lot of teams are very famous for this. The Yankees in, you know, really come to mind. And when it the, and I don't mean to laugh because this, this young man was killed tragically. Mm-hmm. Um, But when the curtain came down, so to speak, what was there was what appears to be someone ran out to a target, grabbed a (laughs) mannequin, came back and threw his uniform on with his number and a helmet, mismatched stuff. And it looked like when they unveil the new uniforms at the beginning of the year and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, those mannequin models. That's what it was. It wasn't it wasn't a statue and fine, maybe they weren't going to put them up in bronze or whatever, but this was a, this was a slap in the face to anyone, you know, that was told there was going to be a, a, a tribute to, to Sean Taylor.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was quite pathetic, quite frankly, right. To, to the thought was, was great to honor somebody, as you said, who tra- died tragically. It's a great player. Um, but to do so in such a sort of slapdash way um, just didn't pay tribute to, the way, to him the way they, they could have or should have.
0: So if someone told you at the beginning of the season that a team was going to do this, but you didn't know where geography, what team, what conference, what division, anything, and said one team is going to do this and this is how they're going to execute it, what, would you, what team would you have named?
1: Probably the commanders. Yeah. There's like not even, <laughs> a, doubt. <Yeah>. even <laughs> a doubt. Yeah, I th- I think about, you know, the Stan usual statue outside Bush Stadium. I think about the beautiful bronze statues that are uh outside the arena in Los Angeles, right. To magic and Kareem. At
0: Wrigley field. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I even
1: think about, you know, Jackie Robinson in the rotundo city field who did not play for the Mets, but was, was honored by the will ponds. I think. Yeah. Well, I, I don't.
0: It, yeah. I, I don't think, listen, you, you, you know, the Michael Jordan statue in front of United center is this iconic piece that. Everybody yes. Yes. It, right. It's it's, and it's a great statue. Now that's Michael Jordan, best basketball player ever. Top. Chicago athlete ever. So I, I don't want to necessarily compare um that, but this was meant to be a tribute and it was just so half-assed in everything. It's almost like they're like, Well, we didn't get it done yet. So this is the stand. And if they'd said that, I, which would have been horrible, I might have had more respect.
1: Hey, well, yeah, it was like sort of like, hey, why don't you run over to the Smithsonian and, and ask them if he can borrow one of the displays from the uniforms through the ages <laughs> exhibit? <laughs> right? Get yeah. get late 90s. That's yeah. for late nineties. Um, but I, I used to have a coach who who would say half-assed is nowhere, right? And then that's that's what comes to mind with these guys. But yeah, Daniel Snyder, the gift that keeps on giving.
0: Yes. Do you
1: want to do any other quick hits? We've got the Big Ten championship coming up this weekend. Oh yeah. The the eleven and zero Wolverines of Michigan coming off a a beatdown of the Ohio State. Playing that juggernaut Purdue Boilermakers coming in at eight and four. Eight gotta and watch. four in a conference championship game. Gotta
0: watch, gotta watch for a letdown game.
1: They're eight I, and four. Come yeah, on. Yeah. You know, so, I'm a Buckeyes yeah. fan and I, you know, like all, you know, hail to the victors, right? They, they handed it to Ohio State last weekend in, in the horseshoe. But I don't think anybody, including Purdue fans, could say that the two best teams are playing in a big time championship game. Yeah. You just
0: can't keep... it, it, it the setup obviously doesn't lead to that. It's just clearly right. not going to lead to that the way it's set up. So um Kevin Warren's made a lot of things happen at the big Ten since taking over as commissioner. Um, yeah, so we'll see if so so we'll see if he can address this because obviously it can't be something that he's
1: excited about, you know interesting to note that if if this was an extended expanded playoff field, right, as we will have in the future. Ohio State will have not made the would not have made the conference championship game and most likely would make the playoffs as a one loss team. So yeah, so that's got to be fixed, Commissioner Warren. We'd love to have you on. Love to give yes. you our thoughts.
0: Yes, we're we're gonna we're gonna go after that. That's a good one. Hey, one other uh, quick hit I wanted to add. You know, we've talked about some of the teams that have come up for sale. Some of them have been a little surprising. I read something saying that they're roughly. $21 billion worth of uh, teams for sale across the world. And there's some big ones. So we've talked about the Commanders. And <laughs> as an NFL team, that's going to fetch a big price. Uh, Manchester United now and um, uh, the Glazer family is saying they're, they're open to sale. We talked about Fenway Sports Group uh, and the sale of Liverpool, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Um, are up, as well as the Washington Nationals. So two teams out of the Washington, D.C. market, the Suns uh, and then uh, Ottawa Senators of the NHL. And there is some additional talk about investment in various other teams including uh, like taking bigger stakes or offering bigger stakes from PSG.
1: Silver Lake Lake announced they uh, took a bigger stake in City Football Can we just go back to one thing, the most ridiculous sports name? the Los Angeles angels of Anaheim. I, I thought that the New Jersey jets of New York or New York jets of New Jersey. I mean, come on.
0: Yeah. The, I never felt, listen, if, if I was an angels loyalist or worked there, maybe I would have had a problem with the Dodgers owning the LA market by name. Um, I always thought the California angels was kind of a cool name. You know, it, 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 said something but yeah they wanted yeah, it I mean, in so yeah it wasn't
1: it was, in, was inclusion <laughs> right
0: right yeah i thought it was ridiculous i thought I, I remember when it happened um i can't remember how long ago it was but i <laughs> do recall this and thinking that that it just seemed ridiculous to kind of go to those lengths um to do it i mean i get not wanting to be the anaheim angels i guess um but I I mean, the
1: question is, what's wrong with it? Right. I mean, that's my embrace your Southern California milieu. Right. You're not San Diego. You're not Los Angeles. You're you're basically halfway between the two. Yeah. And and Orange County is a huge market.
0: It is a huge market. But I mean, listen, your your media market is Los Angeles. Right. So, I mean, that's why New York Jets and New York Giants. My point is sense. you're
1: not fooling anybody by calling yourself the Los Angeles <laughs> Angels. Especially when you were the
0: California Angels for so long. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I guess some people don't recall it. Anyway, point I wanted to make, and that's a good one about the ridiculous of, of ridiculousness of the name, is that there are some big teams that are, that are either up for sale or investment coming in, and there doesn't seem to be a shortage of people potentially bidding on them
1: yeah it'll be you know it'll be interesting to see how things shake out not surprisingly there are a number of middle eastern suitors right particularly the cutteries and the saudis looking at liverpool and uh manchester united in particular um who as we know have very very deep pockets
0: all right i think that is a good time for a break we got an interesting guest and we'll be back
1: on the other side it's time for our guest. Uh, welcome back we are really excited to have our next guest dr jonathan jensen is an associate professor of sport administration at the university of north carolina where he focuses on the intersection of data science and sport marketing uh before entering the world of academia dr jensen Spent time both in agencies, including GMR and Relay Worldwide, as well as with teams in Major League Baseball and the NFL. Dr. Jensen, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me on. Big fan of the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, Thank thank you.
2: you. Appreciate that.
1: So let's get started. So you've you've been working on what you call an ROI model for the last eight years, Um, and you've assembled an incredibly immense data set, um, tell our listeners what a sponsor, uh, or, a, a more likely a property can learn, um, from that data set.
2: Sure. Um, well, it kind of depends on your perspective. I think if you're a property, um, then what this model can do for you is essentially predict the future. What it can do is, uh, make a prediction for, um, both whether a sponsor is going to renew with your property, and then ultimately how long they will end up staying with you. And think about it this way, you already know how much they're paying you, right? Um, so then you can plug in some numbers and really ultimately get to like an ultimate um, kind of predicted revenue number for, for, the, uh, for the sponsor. Um, and the way I like to think about it is that, you know, we all have scarce resources, right? You can't, Go out and target every particular you know every potential sponsor every minute of the day and you're also you know allocating resources in terms of activation managers and and you can't spend time with every sponsor in your portfolio for every minute the idea is that you can kind of um, uh, prioritize which sponsor, both in the sales um cycle and then also with your existing sponsor portfolio you know, which sponsors are more likely ultimately to give you the most revenue because they're going to be more likely to renew and stay with you longer we all agree it's easier to keep a sponsor than to find a new one um, on the other side on the brand side i think that there's some important potential implications and that's why i'm kind of positioning it as an roi model because um the underlying assumption is that sponsors who renew are generally um, seeing success from the sponsorship i know there's a lot of situations where you might you know have a competitive situation you might enter renew a sponsorship um you know just for competitive reasons but for the most part there's an underlying assumption here that sponsors are going to renew because they're finding success with it they're activating it well they're getting their roi so that's kind of the underlying um assumption here so it allows you to understand the which types of sponsors and sponsorships and and everything else are more likely to um, essentially um, return a more positive ROI? So um, that's really kind of the way I'm I'm positioning it for brands.
0: I'm curious, uh, Jonathan. You talked about a sponsor saying that the sponsorship has been successful. They're using it right. They're activating it well. They're getting good business results out of it. Do you see any consistency? Uh, when when they're looking at it and saying, well, we're successful with it because we're achieving objectives. On those that tend to be successful, or that grade themselves successful, or you would grade successful through the model, are there, co- are there consistent things that you're seeing? Are the factors somewhat universal, or is every case very, very unique, especially on the brand side?
2: Sure. Yeah, great question. I, I think one of the more interesting things that we've learned through this process is that we've been able to isolate some things that are very consistent. And then we've, what we've found is that brands all around the world, all across a wide variety of different sponsorships really act very similarly based on um, a, a subset of a variety of different factors. And think of it this way. So even after in the model, you control for the economy, where the sponsor decision maker is located, the type of sponsorship, which category that sponsor is in, control for all of that then there's still about four or five different brand related factors that are statistically significant predictors of a sponsor renewing a sponsorship Um, and really the two that kind of bubble up to the top are regional proximity so a hometown deal a sponsor in the same metropolitan area of um, the property is about 12 percent more likely uh, or less likely to exit sponsorship high a high degree of brand equity so brands that have a high degree of brand equity i think are simply just more patient with sponsorships they understand that hey to build a brand and go through the entire brand process from you know initial awareness all the way to brand equity and brand loyalty it needs to you need to be patient with it you know you can't just jump in and out of sponsorships so they're about 20 percent less likely to exit um Publicly traded companies, um, you know, large publicly traded companies, which I think is kind of a proxy for like firm size, they're about twenty percent less likely um, to exit. Um, and then uh, congruent brands, and then brands that are um, more B two B oriented are also less likely to exit. So, so those are all, you know, even even in a very large data set, statistically significant predictors of kind of what we're terming positive ROI. Because these types of sponsors are more likely to you know renew their sponsorships and stay in them.
1: are those before we go on to the next question, I just had a quick follow- up. Yep. I think David's going to want to say something too. Um, but are those uh, are those predictive factors additive in that if you if you as a brand uh, are a couple, you know demonstrate several of those characteristics? is the propensity to renew additive I, I hope that's that question makes sense
2: yeah yeah so one thing we do in these types of models is that we make sure that there's no collinearity meaning um, a high degree of correlation between the different variables so um, and that's not the case with this model it's not um, uh, you know we look at a very vari- various metrics so these are all kind of distinctive factors so, um, So that's not an issue where it's like, well, you know, it's, it's it's, so, so we're adding, we're, we're, it's not an additive situation per se, but what we can do with this type of modeling is we can look at interaction effects. What that means is that the effect of one variable might depend on another variable as well. So, you know, if a client came to us and said, well, you know, um, we're obviously congruent, we're a, a, a high fit, you know, brand with sponsorship, but you know, we're also a private corporation. Is there an interaction there where perhaps, um, and we can we can measure that and we can tease all the, all the potential interactions between those variables out. Um, and that's really where you get to, you know, it, does the factor really kind of stand alone or is it as you kind of saying additive or does it kind of depend on something else? So we can do that. Um, we haven't teased out, you know, all of the different, because um, there's already about 50 different variables in the model, we haven't teased out every possible um, you know, scenario, but think of it this way. Like if you're a, if you're a, a beverage manufacturer, are you, are you, are you not more or less likely to renew just because you're also like a publicly traded corporation? So those things can be teased out, um, and kind of customized, but we haven't looked at every single scenario yet.
0: Yeah, sure. the, the reason that Tim said that I might want to say something is, is we have a, ongoing tradition on this show that when a guest is kind enough to say that was a great question or that was a good question we try to attribute it because we actually kind of write and bounce we co-write the questions and we just bounce back and forth we never know i gotta say on that one i think i i think i'm because I riffed off of your question, but I'm still giving you 65% of that. Okay. It goes to to Tim McGay. Just (laughs) just wanted to set the table there for you,
1: Jonathan. Jonathan, he doesn't like to read my questions verbatim so he can take (laughs) partial credit if he gets that, but be that as it may. The next question we have, um, when you look at advertisements for investments, right? Whether it's equities or precious metals, they always have that legalese that says past performance is not indicative of future results, right? It's a way to cover themselves in case you invest money and it doesn't, it doesn't return you what you, you hope it would. What I think I'm hearing you say in, in your model is in fact that past performance and past behavior is actually a very high, uh, indication of future performance? Am I understanding the model correctly?
2: Yeah, I think so. So there's really two parts to predictive analytics. There's kind of training a model, you know, using a data set to build a model. Um, and again, our our data set consists of about, we're up over 5,800 sponsorships um, across about 85 years, um, about 23,000 observations. So if there's an Excel spreadsheet, it would have 23,000 rows in it. But, but that's all just to develop the model, essentially, you know, with different coefficients and weights across all the variables and all the things that are in the model. Well, then I think the fun thing uh, here, and really I think what is different from the industry is everybody's really just looking at old data and dashboards. Well, you know, two years ago we signed this sponsor and they paid this much and, and everything what predictive analytics does to sponsorship and it's, you know, it's done this in other uh, sport related industries like ticketing, is that now we're able to then plug these predicted values into the model and then make the prediction for the future, essentially. So it uses the data, but then, you know, all the zeros and ones that get plugged into the algorithm, essentially, um, you know, like the matrix then, you know, each then tweak, tweak the prediction one way or another. And then because, again, because you know, as a property, how much or or a brand, you know how much you're paying and how long you've been in the sponsorship already. Then you can then plug that in and then make an ultimate prediction for both how long the sponsor will ultimately stay with you and then um, you know how much revenue you know you would get from that sponsor. And the idea is to provide actionable intelligence um, again, which is I think is something missing. We're all looking at data. Oh, that's great. You know we we understand it, but then. actually making, generating insights from that data and then making changes to your strategy. You know, if you're a salesperson, you only have so many hours in the day. So then targeting those particular sponsors that the model is suggesting, hey, if if you're able to reel these guys in, this is how much revenue you're going to get, but they're going to end up staying with you for 10 years, 12 years, 14 years. That's really kind of the know what i make why i'm so excited about the model you know and and what we can do with it in the future
1: yeah it's uh, it's not just a sponsorship sales tool it's a human resource tool right because to your point you have finite resources it's a finance tool right when you're budgeting and trying to estimate what your revenue is going to be in the out years it's fascinating
2: yeah that's that's a great point actually it's so Think of yourself, like when you were at AT&T, you have all these people above you and finance and the CFO and and they're, they're trying to understand, all right, you know, how much do we have allocated for all this stuff? Well, you know how much you have in your existing agreements, right? You know, mm-hmm. while we're to, in the second year of this agreement, we're in the third year of this agreement, we're in the eighth year of this agreement. What this does actually, though, is uh, looks beyond the current agreement. To the ultimate duration of how long you would be expected to stay in that sponsorship ultimately then you can basically deliver to your cmo all right well you know, all these contracts are three to five year deals that we're in currently but if i apply this model it suggests that in the next say 10 years or so you know we're probably going to be on the hook for this this many dollars across all these sponsorships from the very start uh, uh, of the partnership to the very end which you know can be helpful I know you guys at ATT you know, went through mergers and acquisitions and things like that and they're looking at well how much do we have this on the you know on the books into okay. the future so it allows you to kind of project um you know as a financial projection tool into the future and understand how much you're going to ultimately pay for the sponsorship um should you you know choose to continue to stay in them?
1: yeah and boy you talk about having a lot of people above me i think the only people who had more people above me than i did right. at at t were people in the cemetery
0: i was i was just gonna say i don't know what you're talking about i was gonna say you just rolled into those budget meetings and say i got this i got this don't worry don't worry about the budget right well, that's I'll tell how you i what, figured you did that
1: well i'll tell you one thing when i left at t i had a 105 million dollar budget and my wife won't give me the checkbook yeah so you tell me who's smarter
2: Well,
0: all right. I'm curious as to whether or not when you look at, I mean, it's World Cup time. So we're all kind of focused on that, a a real true global partnership. Do factors such as where the sponsorship resides, whether it's a European versus an American, are those factors put into the model or do do they create any differences in output?
2: Yeah, that's an important point because the, the data is, are global in that it's not just U.S.-based sponsorships. We've got um, about a third of the, of the sponsorships in there are, Europe, are European-based firms, uh, so European sponsors, about um, 15% are Asian, about half are North America, but we're, we're looking at it actually of where the sponsor is located. So I can, uh, again, you know, things are customizable. If someone wanted to see, all right, well, give me some data on, you know, just those European-based sponsorships. We have every shirt sponsorship uh, across all the big five soccer leagues in history. We have every naming rights deal, um, not only in North America across the major sports, but then also in Europe across those five major, got um, every Olympics and World Cup sponsorship. So we could do that in terms of, you know, where the where the property is based, but actually the way the model works is it's, it's based on uh, really the sponsor attributes, meaning the, the person who's making the decision to renew or not. So, um, so it's based on where the sponsor sits, essentially where the sponsor decision maker sits. And again, that's one of the more interesting things in the model is that whether you're in Asia or Europe or North America, it's, uh, it's very consistent and what we call generalizable across you know all of these things you would think like north american based sponsors might be different from european based sponsors might be different from asian sponsors they're all very similar the asian sponsors are probably the ones that are a little different they're about 12% about 12% less likely to exit compared to north american based mm-hmm. sponsors which kind of makes sense um you know culturally there's a lot of loyalty and you also have a, a lot of situations like with dentsu where um, they have a lot of control in in their world, and they're basically telling uh, properties, Hey, you know you're gonna invest in the sponsorship versus, as we all know, from our experience in the agency world, you know we 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 don't have that kind of power.
0: Hey, I'm assuming you're adding rows to that excel chart regularly and adding new sponsorships and and i uh, I'm curious as to whether or not you have uh pickleball factored in yet. This show would no. definitely like to know that
2: no not. we don't have any pickleball sponsorships but uh but just about every type of sponsor the most recent one we added in was wmba you know, we have we have a lot of um women's sports sponsorships in the data because we have every wta event sponsorship and every um, lpga event sponsorship in history um, but i wanted to all of the leagues that we had the big four leagues and then mls nascar um, I wanted to add WNBA to that list. So we did that recently and that put us over about 5,800 um, different sponsorships. But yes, uh, again, it's customizable. So at any time a client can come to us and say, well, you know, could you look, let's add our sponsorships or let's look at a particular category and that, and that can be added on at any time.
0: Well, when you feel the weight is shifted so much where you have to add Pickleball, you please let us know so we can address that on the show. That's all I'll ask. Uh, yeah the only
2: help. issue is this data is really longitudinal because we go back about again about 85 years um, so what you have to do and the, the reason why it took eight years is that you can't just have the current sponsors it would have been real easy if you just said well all right let's just build up build the data set based uh, on the current yeah. sponsor you have, you have to have all the former sponsors as well and that takes a long time because when you're talking about the the, the you know a probability um you you need to make sure you have complete data sets so you have you have to have all the current sponsors and then all of the former sponsors so that's kind of why it took so long to build the data set kind of semester after
1: semester. semester. Jonathan when you you look at a category and you and you're able to determine the likelihood or not of uh of their renewing a sponsor, is there any way to sort of then take it to the next level and give the user of the data some sort of level of confidence um, in terms of, you know, going back to your point where there's there are finite resources, uh, is there a way for a salesperson or a sales manager to say to his team, I want you to go after the the wireless category, and I want you to go after the the home and auto insurance category because those are the ones that are that I think we have the best chance and here's why we have the best chance
2: yeah so um, categories are really important um, but again we have about 25 different categories that are represented by these kind of binary variables zeros and ones in the in the model we can always add more um, but those are kind of the. Categories that that IEG has kind of said, hey, these he's, these are the high demand categories, so we want to kind of control for categories that bring in the most spending. And interestingly, a lot of the ones that you would would think would be you know really uh, different are really not. That like auto and uh, non-alcoholic beverages and alcoholic beverages, the categories that have the most spending are really no more or less likely um, you know to renew than than many of the others. Um, but there are a few that kind of bubble up to the top. Um, uh, the highly commoditized industries. So think about like um, credit cards, um, insurance, banks, where they're, they've used sponsorships for a number of years because it, it kind of injects their brand with personality. Nobody can tell the difference really between you know, a Discover card and a Visa card and a MasterCard. Same thing with Allstate, State Farm. So particularly in the insurance category they use them to kind of differentiate themselves, I think they they not only spend a lot, but they they kind of have it down and they've been doing it a long time so all three of those categories are are significantly less likely to exit sponsorships. Um, But to get back to your question. um, The you know we deal in statistical significance, so if if. If something's not, uh, if there's a, like a less than 1% chance that I'm kind of making an error and making a statement, then, you know, we would just say, you know, well, the automotive category is no more or less likely to, to um, exit a sponsorship than other other categories. So you're really dealing with like a 95% confidence interval. Um, but I think the way the way I would deal with that with a client is they said, if they would say, well, like I could give them, a, the model's gonna spit out an exact projection, All right, This sponsor is protected with you for another 5.7 years. But we can also give them ranges. So we can say, well, do you want a 95% confidence interval? Do you want plus or minus 10%, um, 15%, 20%? Because you can essentially use percentiles. Um, and you can, when you make the predictions with the model, you could just say, well, you know, give me the so we're generally we're dealing with the 50th percentile, right? The like the median time. But I could say, well, give me also the, you know, the the 40th and the 60th, and it can kind of give you a little bit of a range. So that's probably how I would handle that, you know, with a client is give them a bit of a range.
0: So I want to go back to, you You covered this when you talked, you mentioned the insurance category and that it it tends to be one that renews. I want to make sure I understood the point. A big reason you're attributing or the, you're attributing that largely to this idea that sponsorships become so important in identifying the brand and uh, creating some separation between one brand and another.
2: Yeah, I mean that—that's my. The model doesn't tell me exactly why, but when I see insurance, banks, and credit cards um, are significantly less likely. Banks are one of the—they're about forty percent less likely to exit a sponsorship. Not only do they—they they have a lot of money, obviously, so they're maybe they're able to kind of ride out. Or maybe they're able to renew some sponsorships that maybe aren't working as well because of how much money they have. But um, they they kind of know how to do the game, right? State Farm's, the All States, and the banks of the world with all the naming rights deals you know, in the data set. They kind of done this a long time, and they've used sponsorship for many many years to differentiate their brands. So I think that's why um, I would attribute those findings to them. On the other side, you know, that interestingly, I mean, there are some categories that are that are more likely um, back to like um, pharma you know one kind of makes sense where you have a limited scope or maybe you spend spend it in a large burst um, where you all of a sudden kick off this massive advertising campaign but then you know once once you're no you go to generic then you no longer need the sponsorship so they're they're about 40% more likely to exit but there's a couple others tech firms obviously there's kind of a theoretical explanation for that. Tech firms generally more interested in like initial signal that the sponsorship, that the signing of the sponsorship uh, provides to kind of signal, hey, we're we're going to have an IPO or we're a big firm. Kind of what we've seen with crypto, but they're less likely to stay on for eight or ten years. So that one. So hotels are also more likely to exit. So, so you could look at both sides, but by and large across these 25 categories. Most of them are not, the the data are really generalizable really to any category and each and every category is, you know, represented in the data, you know, because there, there's, you know, every potential brand that you would, has invested in sponsorship is in this data set. It's just, there's a limited number of, of categories that we've kind of controlled for in the model. But at any time we could add, like we don't have like oil or fuel. And if a brand came to us and said, hey, can you, you know, can we tease that out a little bit, then we can just that variable because the data are there it's just you know, adding it into the model
1: so so there's not it's not something where you're regularly adding new sponsorship categories you're sort of doing it on a case-by-case basis if somebody requests it or i mean for example a couple of years from now when the cannabis industry or cannabis category for example has had a few years of, of performance and results would that be something that you would add or not necessarily
2: um, you know it's it's tough. You have to all these different factors and variables that we're talking about that are in the model, you have to you have to make sure that they're one hundred percent accurate. um you know that's why like how much a sponsors paying is is not it's not built into the model because it's just you're not able to get accurate data across fifty eight hundred sponsorships. But yes, the idea here is that you know once we you know license the model or you know bolt it onto kind of an existing um platform that someone's using, the idea is that a client could pay for customization. Because you know, they can they can uh, add their information for each and every sponsorship into the model, make predictions, but then if they want to add data, if they if they came to us and said, well, can you add this this data to it if you want to add a particular category, then you know you could just customize and, and build on the model. So yeah, it's kind of um the data set is kind of a living you know organism and can be Kind of tweaked um, over time.
0: I want to take a big step back here, and I would love to know um, what the impetus was for you to make the leap from agency side. You were at two very well-known agencies working on great brands uh, to focus your your career and uh, you know your future on the academic side, and particularly in this data science.
2: Yeah, it um we we have to go back about 20 years ago um you know and I, and I was working on the Miller Brewing account at GMR which is Great Beer and Sports and um and and Steve Luletta was the the director of sports marketing at Miller Brewing company and he was really the first one that that forced us to think strategically and use data to help them make decisions and it was just like basically gathering a bunch of data points about like different speedways that they were sponsoring to the, kind of help you know, kind of rank them and determine which ones we should kind of move forward with. But it was really, a, even though I had been, I'd been in a smaller agency, had been in the NFL and Major League Baseball, it was really the first time that I'd used data to inform decision making. And I, and I really got interested in that. And then I worked with Keith Bruce with Radiate, and we did a bunch of really interesting projects. Like we did a big project for Visa around the FIFA World Cup um, when they were first entertaining that. And, and, I really got into the. I've always been a numbers person, but that kind of really got me into it, and ended up, you know, being the director of strategic consulting at Really Worldwide. Where all of our kind of research tools, um, MRI Simmons, ESPN Sports Poll, um, were all underneath kind of me. But ultimately, what it made me realize is how little I actually knew. Um, you know, we were just looking at like averages and means and plugging numbers into spreadsheets, even though we were doing some really interesting work. We developed our own brand exposure analysis system and we're recording games and tracking exposure but it really wasn't you know it wasn't statistics it wasn't anything um you know that that anybody would get really excited about that was outside the industry and um and it bugged me i was part of integrated account teams you know in um, uh, with the advertising agency leo burnett across like uh, u.s army and walgreens and McDonald's, and you know and they were always constantly you know digging our our inability to really. um you know put the data behind our decisions um you know because they had things like gross rating points and and impressions and therapies we had impressions and things like that but i just realized you know how little i actually knew about this stuff Man, if i could if i could actually you know learn like it like advanced statistical modeling um and use it on this stuff you know that could be really exciting um, because apart from you know large corporations that are doing like marketing mix modeling, you know nobody was really integrating you know their sponsorship investments into those things. So th- that was where the kind of the dream started. But ultimately, where it was was number one. Um, I'd had some great professors at the University of Notre Dame and at UMass Amherst, guys like Bill Sutton and Jay Gladden and Glenn Wong, and um, and I always thought I always thought well that's where I'm going to end up. Um, you know, after I do this for 30 or 40 years, you know, I'm gonna end up being a professor. But at about 15 years into my career, you know, I kind of started reevaluating and said, well, think of it this way. What would I do if I um, won the lottery tomorrow? Like, what's the first thing I would do? And money wasn't a factor and I could do whatever I want. And what came back to me was I would go get a PhD. That was something that I got really, really excited about and wanted to do. So then i said well then why don't i just do that um and i so i built up a consulting entity so i'd have some income and have kind of projects to be able to continue to support my family you know through that journey of going back to school at age 38 um so and and i was able to do that so it kind of was a bit of a um you know a venn diagram in terms of kind of my passion for data and for kind of getting to an answer in terms of sponsorship roi um but then also kind of looking back at my career and saying you know what would what, ultimately what would i do right now and i would i would go get a phd and then i was also thinking well if i'm going to become a professor when i'm 30 or 40 why don't i just do that now right why am i waiting another 15 years so that was another part of it as well so that's so that's when i I went back to school, got a PhD, learned about these types of, you know, really advanced models that not even most PhD students learn about. Um, and then, and then set about applying them to the, what I'd already been doing for the previous 15 years. That was kind of the, the secret sauce a little bit is I already knew what I wanted to do research. When a lot of people get a PhD, they're kind of like searching, well, I don't know what I'm passionate about or what I want to study. I already knew that. So all of my classes that I took I already knew what I wanted to apply them to is just really just about learning the quantitative methodologies. And I was able to learn them um, and then apply them to what I was kind of already passionate about. So that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but that's how it kind of all kind of came about.
1: It's a fascinating journey. I wanna go back even further than David did <laughs> and ask you the two questions that we ask all our guests before we let you go. You've been very kind with your time. The first one is how did you get your start in the sports business? And then the follow-up to that is, what one piece of advice do you have? I'm sure you're asked this a lot as a professor, but what one piece of advice do you have for somebody who's looking to break into the
0: industry?
2: Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I went to Notre Dame um, because I was passionate about sport. Um, I kind of looked at, you know, Notre Dame and Notre Dame football as kind of the pinnacle. Of it, so I would, and I was. A- that's why I took that journey, and and I worked in um, as a student manager and for the football and basketball teams there. That was kind of my first real real sports job, and a lot of folks in the industry has done that. Have done that. Nina King, the new uh, athletic director at Duke, was a student manager. So that was kind of how I initially did it, and then on on the industry side, once I graduated, I got hooked up with a tiny little sports marketing agency. Uh, Tim Stevens was there. Andrew Fight from NASCAR and. To know guys like Mike Boykin and Greg Bush, were all kind of launching these these small agencies. So that was kind of the the start of all of it uh, back in back in 1995. Um, in terms of advice, I would give. I mean, um, a lot of students are coming into my office all the time about you know, hey, how do I do this? How do I do that? Um, I think it's really about being curious um, and um, being willing to to take on you know different roles, whether they be internships, unpaid or paid or working at events where you're just gonna meet people. Um, that's the second thing really is try to surround yourself around you know, with great people who are gonna learn from. Um, no opportunity is gonna be perfect. Um, you know, oftentimes students come to us and say, well, should I take this job or this internship or this job? And um, generally my question is, you know, where where ha- who has the best people that you're gonna learn from? Because all of us, uh, even today, you know, we're still learning Um, And you need to connect yourself with, you know, really interesting people who've done this type of work like you guys have to to learn and to be pushed further. So it's really about um, uh, uh, about surrounding yourself with the best people rather than thinking about, well, what opportunities am I going to make the most money or have room for advancement? So that's another big piece of advice I give.
1: Great advice. Great,
0: Great stuff. We got some great names to drop on this show don't we yeah
1: you've, okay. you've had uh you've been surrounded by great people as yeah. have the people who've gotten the opportunity to work with you
0: yep yep
1: so with that jonathan we'll, we'll thank you again for joining us i found this absolutely fascinating this topic i wish i had a tool like this when i was at at&t uh, but uh good luck the rest of the semester i know it's coming down to crunch time for you and your students so we wish you all the best and a and a great holiday season
2: thanks Jonathan. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you again to Dr. Jonathan Jensen of the University of North Carolina. Really uh, interesting stuff that he's building there. Um, This is the point in the show where we typically take a look forward, but we're going to give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain um, on how we do this show. So, we recorded the upfront piece at about 1 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, November 29th. So uh, I made a couple of references to the kickoff of the Iran versus United States match. We took a break to watch the match. <laughs> uh, no, we took a break because we actually have full time jobs and uh, we did watch the match. And. Uh, and then we came back, and in the interim, obviously, the match was completed. So congratulations to the United States. They prevailed one to nothing. Um, second straight clean sheet for the United States. They did not make it easy um, on those of us watching. <laughs> Christian Pulisic scored at the 38th minute, and, uh, and that was all she wrote. But uh, nine minutes of extra time in the second half. A couple of very close plays, a header that just went wide of the cage and uh, a ball that snuck through uh, Turner's legs, went right through the wickets. But before it reached the touchline, um, the U.S. defender cleared it away harmlessly. And then that was it. So uh, I'll just finish up by saying what I'm looking forward to is uh, seeing whether Christian Pulisic plays on Saturday in the match versus the Netherlands in round of 16 of the knockout stage.
0: Yeah, congratulations to everyone at US Soccer and the US men's national team. It, it was a it was a big match and they won it. They scored one more goal than Iran and they won the match. But my goodness, that second half was stressful uh, as a fan of the team and they they I thought they played miserably in the second half compared to the first half and it was very it would not have been surprising to anybody if Iran had tied that match up and and That would have meant the U S goes home and doesn't get out of the uh, group stage. So uh, congrats to everybody. It was, uh, it was great to be able to watch it. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, the action on the pitch has been great. These games have been thrilling and I think we knew that they would be Um, some upset, some, some awesome play. uh, But what I think I'm, Going to continue to be focused on, and I don't know if it was the this particular match that they got me zoned in on it, and what we talked about in the earlier part of the show. But you know, what is this legacy going to be of this tournament? I mean, everything that I've heard is is that Qatar is actually putting on a hell of a show. These venues look quite amazing. It might all be a veneer, but apparently the hospitality and the hotels and the transportation uh, in Doha have been great, and people are are kind of heralding. Uh, what has been pulled off. I'm not that surprised by that, but this is a much more complicated legacy as we know. And so when it comes to who is going to get the 2030 FIFA World Cup uh, with you know Saudi Arabia is is in the hunt for that, but they'll have to partner with some other countries. And apparently, Greece has jumped into potentially being a partner on that. So we'll we'll see what happens, and we'll see how FIFA responds coming out of this game. Are they taking a slightly different tone than they have been there? All those stories fascinate me from a business and a uh, you know a, a you know kind of a social perspective. Uh, so in addition to hopefully watching some more action on the pitch. Um, these are This is the thing I'm going to be paying some attention to.
1: Yep. The story continues to be written. Um, and I do have a sense that it is partly a Potemkin village, right? Yep, As we like to say, watch this space yeah. because we'll be covering it. So with that, I want to thank our guest again, Jonathan Jensen. Thank you, David, my co-host. And most of all, thank our listeners. If you like what you hear, please. Follow us, like us, share us, give us feedback. You are what makes this show what it is. So until next week, he's DP. I'm McGee, and we'll talk soon.